Good morning, everyone. Uh, so glad to see you, sort of. I guess you're glad to see me. Uh, thank God that uh, our church can continue to worship him in a time uh, when uh, people are, yeah, um, people are shut uh, in homes. I am in home in, in body, but I'm with you in spirit and in sound and uh, image. Okay, today we're continuing our study of the book of Job, relating to God while suffering in life. This is lesson number 14. You deserve it. <laughs> the text is Job 20. Okay, as we have known uh, in this uh, book and the roadmap, there is a cosmic big picture where uh, or uh, a righteous man is blessed at first, this is expected, then a righteous man is suffering, this is unexpected. There's a conflict, and in the traditional moralistic universe system, this cannot be tolerated. So there were speeches of Job and friends. Job opened the speech saying, why should I live? It is so painful. And then there was the first round of dialogue. Eliphaz uh, was the most reasonable one. He said, I love you, brother, but I'm sorry you are punished for sin. However, Job's answer is, where was I wrong? Help me, brother. I can't find the problem. I can't pinpoint it. And then Bildad, who was the emotional friend, he said that you must repent. And that's the only way for you to be restored to glory. And Job's answer is, I will argue my case. And Zophar, the willful friend, said, you must shut up. <laughs> and Job said, well, well, you're wise, huh? Are you? Okay, the whole first round, first round of dialogue is the end of reason. The second round of dialogue is really the flaring of emotion. First of all, Eliphaz said, oh, who do you think you are? Because even he, the reasonable one, has lost his hope. And Job uh, said, well, who understands me? Bildad said that you are dangerous. You just behave like that proud, wicked man. And then Job's answer is, I don't deserve this. Well, today, in uh, chapter 20, Zophar, the willful friend, said, you deserve it. Okay, so... Uh, let's uh, see what happens in the moralistic universe. First of all, Job's friends said, You are suffering in the way evil sinners supposed to do. Therefore, you must be an evil sinner. Jesus' brothers, the Jews, told him, You died in the way a bad criminal dies, so you must be a bad criminal. Then today, America's haters says, you are experiencing riots, fire, flood, wars, earthquake, plague, economic crisis, etc. They are all signs of divine judgment. Therefore, you must have been judged by your God. It must be due to the sins of the founders, especially those who owned slaves. 
In addition, your current president was not a saint before he came into office. Don't look at his policy now, just remember his past. Well, don't look at the, pres the past president's past. Okay? Just look at this president's past, but don't look at his policy now. Okay? Just admit your country is evil and deserve to be destroyed. We will create a phoenix from the fire. Trust in us. Just like the snake said in the Jungle Book, trust in me. Only the torrid of the eye. Okay. And um, we have tried in Nazi Germany and in Communist Soviet Union before. We are experienced revolutionaries. We always intended for good. Don't ask questions, don't say anything, just watch our programs. Pay your tax, give us your gun, we will be good to you. For the interest of the collective, after taking care of the leaders of the cause. Well, sounds pretty familiar, right? I'm putting together the sayings of Communist China, Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and the progressive liberals today, and all of them are saying similar Thing. They are all operating in a uh, system of a moralistic universe. Okay. And uh, when you talk about knowing, understanding, thinking, and doing, you must understand there are four philosophical questions. Okay. There are four branches of philosophy as a result of four fundamental philosophical questions. The first question is, how do we know? From the answer to that comes epistemology, which is the philosophy on knowledge. The second fundamental philosophical question is, what is there or what exists? Like, is there God? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Is there, you know, law? Is there consequence? Is there sin? Is there you know, righteousness, all of those. What is there? That is called metaphysics, okay? And this is the philosophy on existence, what exists and what does not. And then the next question is, what should I do? What should we do? Okay, it's ethics. From that came ethics. It is on morality. And then the next one is, why do I do this? That means categorical philosophy. It's about the branches specific branches like philosophy of education, philosophy of politics, etc. Okay, um, a category. Okay, uh, why do I do this? Well, because you have the previous three. What should I do? Well, that's because what is there. Okay, and how do you know what is there? That's because you already know how do we know. However, to know how do we know, you always need to know some about what is there. So the first two are intertwined. Okay. Without asking question one and thinking through, people are divided on question two and answer. That is on the worldviews. And then because of that, they can never unite on the question three and question four and their answers. Okay. So worldviews are always divisive. Okay. What is accepted by one side as true is viewed by the others as ridiculous. For example, Jesus' resurrection. For Christians, that is a fact of history. But for non-believers, that is ridiculous. It, that's just something that cannot be true. And you guys who believe in it are crazy. Okay, You're either stupid or crazy. Well, 
You see, they can never unite on what is there because they're not united on how do we know. Okay, the key of knowing correct, uh, correct, uh, the key of knowing correctly starts from something undeniable, which is the testimony of the persecuted. Okay, generally speaking, people lie to benefit themselves. They will not lie to get killed unless they believe it benefits themselves that way. Okay, while another issue, while it is possible to have one lie to die because it is a belief, it is hard to have many doing the same. So Jesus' disciples, many of them, were persecuted to death for the sight of res resurrected Jesus. They simply said, I saw the resurrected Jesus, and for that they were killed. Okay? This is not a belief. It is a sight. So it is not somebody who wrongly believes something and they're willing to die. This is not for a belief. This is for a sight. Therefore, it cannot be wrong. And there were many of them. There were 500 who saw the resurrected Jesus, and many of them were put to death because of this. It is impossible to have so many people believe in something wrong, or actually saw something wrong, and are willing to die for that. That's just, by common sense, impossible. Because of that, Jesus' resurrection is undeniably true. And if Jesus' resurrection is true, then the whole Bible is true. Okay, God's existence, uh, Israel's rise and fall, and the restoration according to the Messiah. But Messiah gave the spiritual kingdom, not the physical kingdom. And then he will come again to give a full kingdom. So all of those things are true because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And the reason we believe in that is because the testimony of the persecuted. That is undeniable. With that as the foundation of our knowledge system, then we build around that. Our worldview is founded okay, on something solid. Okay. Once a few undeniable testimonies are found, one can build upon them a logically consistent network of claims and beliefs until a worldview is established. This is a holistic process of working on epistemology, about how do we know, and metaphysics, about what is there. Okay? This is holistic because these two are intertwined, remember? Okay? And in order to know how do we know, you have to know what is there. In order to know what is there, you have to know how do we know. So these two are intertwined. You have to work on them holistically, not um, just have a starting point at the end and another. They have to be together. Okay. After you've worked on these two together holistically, then you can apply the metaphysics, what is there, to find the correct ethics in what should we do. Okay. Once you know there is God, there's heaven and hell, there's Christ, there's the resurrection, there's eternal life, then you should do what the Bible told the Christian to do. Once you believe there is no God, no heaven, no hell, and then life and the flesh is all there is, then you will do what the non-believers, the atheists, and the, the existentialists do today. Okay. So, and after you have gained the ethics, finally you can combine all of the first three branches of philosophy together to deal with special branches of philosophy, like 
the philosophy of education, the philosophy of politics, etc. Okay, that is the categorical philosophy. You see, there is an order of knowing, thinking, and doing. Okay, and then to do those correctly, you must ask these four questions in the correct order, answer them correctly based on the undeniable things, which is the testimony of the persecuted. Okay, that's why in the Beatitudes at the end it says, Blessed are those who are suffering for the sake of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, because that provides testimony for others to learn about what we have already learned okay, about Christ through our own personal experience. Okay, people need to get, get through two awakenings. The first awakening is to know God and to know good, to get saved by Christ, which benefits self. Okay. The second awakening is to know the world and to know about evil, okay. to become a soldier of Christ, which benefit others. Okay. So we need to awaken twice. Awaken once, you get saved, you get benefit. To awaken second time, you can join the battle because you know who's right, who's wrong. You can fight the, the, the bad, not fighting with the good. Okay? That benefits others. Okay? The philosophical procedures for both awakenings actually are the same. Okay? You must do epistemology before metaphysics. Once established, uh, use them together to get the correct ethics and categorical philosophy. They all start from the testimonies of a few persecuted. Okay. The disciples of Jesus on the resurrection, they are the ones uh, that we relied upon to build our worldview. Okay. Today, if you want to know about the world, you need to know certain people. Uh, I give you a few names. Ted Gunderson. Uh, he was a former FBI directional uh, director, regional director. He testified on cults that rape and kill children, Mark Ultra or MK Ultra or Adrenochrome, and he was murdered by ar arsenic poisoning. Okay, Bill Cooper. Uh, he was from Naval Intelligence. He testified on a secret space program, aliens, which is nothing but um, but Nephilim, fallen angels, and about 9/11. He was killed by machine guns in front of his wife and daughter uh, in the front porch of his house okay, because he just predicted 9-11. Phil Schneider, he predicted, uh, he testified on a deep underground military base or dumbs and he was murdered. Kim Clement, a prophet of God, uh, he testified on God choosing a servant like Donald Trump and everything he said has come true. And then he died. Suspicious reading. I would suggest take these people's testimonies as the undeniable uh, about knowing this world and the evil therein. Okay, once you know that, you can find out what is the greatest conflict between good and evil. That's God and humanity against fallen angels and evil men. Okay. God wants to bless humanity, fallen angels and evil men want to destroy humanity. And the center of the conflict is about children. Okay. 800,000 children disappear from America every year. Okay. And then some are registered, many are unregistered.
because they're just born to be well done with. So this is the greatest battle between good and evil now, and we as Christians must stand on the good side. And thank God the current president is on the good side. So uh, to reach that position, you have to go through the second awakening. A lot of Christians have gone through the first, but not the second, and therefore do not know about this. And therefore sometimes we'll put down those who say they know this as following conspiracy theories. Well, a lot of people believe there are little conspiracies because they know there are evil, but they don't believe in the grand conspiracies. This is assuming that Satan's kingdom are, well, fighting each other and they never can unite. Well, I'm sorry, that's just opposite to what Jesus taught. Jesus said Satan's kingdom, even though they might have different branches, but they are united in uh, fighting against God and humanity. So they stand. Therefore, there are grand conspiracies and the head is Satan. Okay, so in, our enemies are not flesh and blood, but spiritual enemies. We must know this as reality so that we will not be deceived and used. Okay. Now, going to bifurcation. Before people can meet on common ground, working on epistemology first, the divergencies in um, metaphysics will create more uh, and more distant uh, uh, ethics and the categorical philosophy, so much so that there could be no talk, only violence. Okay. For the BLM and uh, Antifa today, their ethics is to destroy this evil country, and especially those who have benefited. Okay, that will be the whites, the middle class, and above, etc. Etc. For them, there is no forgiveness. There must be destruction. It must be burned for the country to rise again as a phoenix. Okay, and then, of course, for other Americans, we would disagree, but there is no talk because our ethics are so different. That's because our metaphysics about the nature of the country is so different. Okay, and the metaphysics is different because our epistemology. Are different. Okay, so this is exactly what is happening now. Okay, the fun conflict is multi-layered, but the deepest of which are between number one, Christianity versus other worldviews, especially Zionist Judaism, which focuses on physical kingdom of God. Christianity is about spiritual kingdom of God, the transformation of character. Zionist Judaism is about the restoration of Israel, power, and glory. And so they cannot agree, and there will be a final conflict, which will be actually, I think, the tribulation. Okay. And another one, the deepest one, is America's lovers versus America's haters. Those who love America are realist Christians. Okay. First of all, America was founded as a Christian country. Not that everybody was a Christian, but the foundational principles were Christian. And, uh, and uh, uh, Christians love this country because we are realist. In reality, nothing is perfect, but you see the essence, and you see the foundation, you see the, the, the fundamental direction 
in that sense, America was a Christian country and has done good and better than any other country that if you can compare to. Okay, but for America's haters, they are people of other worldviews and they are idealists. They measure America by an ideal which re requires perfection, and of course, there is no perfection. Then they got their reason to hate it. Okay. The others, however, always use double standards. Perfection required on Christians and America, while for themselves, it is the stance that matters. For them, stance is more important than truth. And then their leaders of the cause are always excused. Okay. They will always be idealist when measuring uh, their enemies, but practical on serving the leaders of their cause. Okay. I may have. Uh, told you before that Karl Marx took his maid as um, a, a, as sex sexual partner and had a son, and then Vladimir Lenin died of syphilis, and Mao Zedong had a cut a group of of uh, special secretaries as his harem. So these were never told; they are always uh, exalted as moral and great people, the savior of mankind, when themselves have done evil and uh, they are far from ideal. Okay. So, uh, now back to the book, Job and his Friends. Job's friends maintained the system of a moralistic universe where the guilty are punished and the good are rewarded. In all in all the ways, without exception. And Job suffered the fate of a wicked man. He must be wicked. These people in Jesus' time would be the Pharisees and the Zealots. Today, they will be the Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So Job questioned the system and then proposed a claim that the righteous suffer in a fallen universe. So. The role has been reversed in Job's worldview. The universe is not pristine and always precise and neat, okay? uh, where the righteous never suffer and uh, the, uh, the suffering are always the guilty. Okay? Um, uh, just uh, on the opposite side, the universe is fallen. Therefore, the righteous do suffer in this universe not because of their sins and not because they are sinless, but their suffering is unproportional to their sin. It is injustice. That is the problem of the universe, not the suffering. And then this prepared a way for Jesus Christ, an innocent taking on him the sin of the world. Without Job winning his argument, there would have been no Jesus Christ, no redemption, no righteous suffering, and no pain for the sins of the guilty. Okay. No hope of salvation. Okay. So Job is essential for the theology of the New Testament. Job's friends would not look at the existence, uh, at the, the evidence, like Job's life experience, which shakes up their system and makes them dizzy. So the bifurcation deepens. Zophar's depiction on the fate of the wicked in hell in this 
chapter 20 that we're studying. Further, what Bildad already did in chapter 18. It may be true on the typical wicked man, but it has nothing to do with Job. So he is right in certain sense. He's describing the fate of a typical wicked man, and he could be right. But on the other hand, what he described has nothing to do with Job. And by applying that to Job, this man is doing a sin, an accusation, and which later God uh, told them to uh, to repent and by apologizing to Job and ask Job to pray for them in order to be forgiven by God. Okay. Now let, let's get into the text. Okay. Uh, in chapter 20, verse 1, and Zophar, the Naamathite, answered, Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listened to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. Um, he's saying that I have to respond to the insult. Okay. Zophar, first of all, is the willful friend of Job. He was a descendant of Naaman, okay? uh, and interestingly, uh, a woman's name, and it was popular in Ammon. So most likely he's from Ammon, and... Uh, um, he was willful because he has <laughs> he quickly believed that Job was guilty and uh, was uh, um, full in his full strength in condemning Job. He felt insulted by Job's questioning of the system, the moralistic universe, and he had to respond. Okay. And then he said, don't you know the fate of the wicked? In verses 4 and 5. Do you know? This from old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary. Zophar reminds Job the long history before, before their time, in which epics recorded the life accomplishment and the end of the great man. Generally speaking, the more people a man kills, the greater he is in history. Just look at people with a title, the great. Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great, Harold the Great. They all killed many people, and thus they had the title, the appellation, the great, behind their name. So, they may be great. They have done great wickedness. But at the end... They all die. Their earthly triumph and joy are temporary, replaced by the infinite time of silence and pain in hell. If they hear anything, it will be the boiling of water or oil over their flesh, and maybe the, the splashing of the, of, the, of the forks of the uh, devils over their flesh. And there's no intellectual discussion on their triumph. Nobody will remember or compliment that. Okay. Sounds pretty gory. And then Zophar develops the theme, saying that their glories fade away. In verses 6 to 8. Though his loftiness reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his refuse. 
Those who have seen him will say, who is he? He flies away like a dream, and they cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. So no matter how great their accomplishments are, even reaching to heaven, like the Tower of Babel of Nimrod, the result is always oblivion, nothing. In time, they and their accomplishments are all poof, gone with the wind. Those are continued in verses 9 to 11 about what they moved and returned. The eye which saw him sees him no longer, and his place no longer beholds him. His sons favor the poor, and his hands give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. So their place in the world are filled by others. Okay? What they have taken from the poor will be returned to the poor, perhaps by the, their regretful children. As reparation for ancestral sin, today people aren't they proposing reparation? And then well, by willing or unwilling descendants of those who have benefited. And they may feel that they were still young in soul, but their bodies disintegrate into dust without the soul's agreement, even despite its strong pro protest. Don't we feel similarly? Our souls are still young, but our bodies are getting old. And he's saying the evil man will feel the same. And then he continues in the uh, develop a new theme actually. Okay, that the sweet evil poisoned them. Okay, from verse twelve to fourteen. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he abides it under his tongue, tongue. Though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. A wicked man would have enjoyed and benefited from evil. That means hurting others for self-benefit. It felt sweet to him. He may have denied it, but he would not let it go. Okay, because it's sweet. However, evil always has a price. If you use it, you have to pay in some way. Its sweetness poisons the bone. It will always come back and get those who use it, will get you. And then Zophar develops the same theme, the second theme, saying that justice will fall on him in verses 15 to 17. He swallows riches, but will vomit them out, uh, or vomit them up. He will expel them from his belly, he sucks the poison of cobras, the viper's tongue slays him. He does not look at the streams, the river flowing with honey and curds. So, the ill-gotten wealth would be stripped by God. Some worse people would do evil unto them, as they have done evil unto others. Blessings and enjoyment of life would be lost someday on those. Well done. 
And he continues the same theme saying, what goes in, goes out. In verses 20 to 22. Because he knows no quiet within him, he does not retain anything he desires. Nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore, his prosperity does not endure. In the fullness of his plenty, he will be cramped. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. What the greedy man swallows will upset his stomach so that he has to vomit out. When there is nothing to acquire, what he acquired would be lost. When he felt fully satisfied, revolution will catch on him. Okay. And terror is from God and through the mob, said Zophar in verses 23-25. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he is eating. He may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bowl will pierce him. It is drawn forth and comes out of his back, even the glittering point from his gall. Terrors come upon him. You see, the greedy man will eat God's fiery anger, which will burn him from within. In a terror like communist revolution, he may escape from one terror, but not from another. It will be brutal, coming in from one side of him and out from the other, even through his gall. And he said that wealth and family are stripped away, in verses 27, 26 to 28. Complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasures, and unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivors in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of his end. The wealth accumulated in a lifetime can be stripped away in a moment, like fire or looting, and it is just not so. No complaining. Okay. The children of the family can be all killed, and it is by God, so no complaining, said Zophar on Job. And finally, in verse 29, he said, So it is said, so it will be done. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. Zophar confidently dictated that this is God's plan for the wicked man, implying Job. Okay. And uh, this is the best the wise man in the system of the moralistic universe can do as comforts for friends. I would say it is much better in a new system where the universe is fallen and not so neat, where the righteous do suffer, but redemptions happen in Christ Jesus, and hope of eternal life in holiness and love is real for us. At the end of this sermon, in connection to the beginning, for those who are divided on metaphysics, let us work on epistemology, 
starting from the testimony of the persecuted. Job and his friends were divided on metaphysics. Okay, they need to go back to epistemology. Okay, Christians and non-Christians are divided on metaphysics. We need to go back on the epistemology. The testimony of the disciples of Jesus were persecuted to death for the sight of the resurrected Jesus. For no, for the second awakening to know the world and the evil within today. We are also divided on metaphysics, but let us work on epistemology, starting from the testimony of the few persecuted for telling the truth. Starting from there, then you shall understand. You shall know what is right and what to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this very illustrating, illustrative chapter where the speaker seems to be telling the truth about the fate of the wicked man, but he has applied it totally wrong because of the difference in worldview in metaphysics. And the reason is because they have been different um, epistemology. Job was a righteous. He was suffering. He had personal experience and he was telling the truth. But the others could not see that as evidence. They would just think it is a disruption for their need would refuse even to consider the possibility of the exception. And Father, we pray that you give us the courage to go through a period of being dizzy, shaken on our existing metaphysics or worldview by investigating the evidences of the few who are telling the truth and are persecuted and therefore are undeniable. And it may be uncomfortable for a while, but once we resettle onto the biblical worldview where you told us through the life of Job and Jesus that the universe is fallen and the righteous do suffer, and there is a grand a conspiracy headed by Satan, and Satan's kingdom does stand. It, it may have branches and internal fightings, but they always unite in fighting God and humanity. So we pray that you give us the new understanding, both in both awakening, the first one to know about Jesus, to be saved, to benefit ourselves, and the second one to know about the world, know about evil, so we can at least pray, if not in other ways, joining the battle of good against evil. Father, I pray that this is this uh, two awakenings are happening now, and I pray that you awaken the Christian first, and then through our testimonies, you also do both awakenings to the rest of the world. Give a revival to your church. Let us stand on truth and fight against evil. Do our duty and never waste our moments that you have left us on the earth to do good. We pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.
Thank you. Blessed Redeemer, I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. He love is the theme of Redeem, redeem, redeem by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. May let us receive the beneficion of the Lord. May the love of God, the mercy of Christ, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us, be with you, now until eternity, to unite us on asking the right questions, to work on epistemology before metaphysics, united that, in, and then to work on ethics and then categorical philosophy. So we can know how to know what exists, what should we do, and how should we do each thing? I pray in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.